This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 26, 2018. This is episode 2238 of the Survival Podcast. 2238, and it's a Tuesday. Tuesdays are just Jack shows, and we have returned to our regularly scheduled programming uh, since I have returned from my, uh, my ban- I would call it my banishment from paradise, right? Like, you know, once a year I go somewhere cool, and the coolest place I go as far as I'm concerned is where I just was, which is Sanibel Island. And whenever I leave that place, I feel like I'm being banished from paradise back to the real world. And uh, while I love what I do and I love my life, I don't know, man, June, heading to July, 100-plus degrees, everything's brown in Texas, or the turquoise waters of South Florida. Hmm. Gee, where would I rather be right now? Well, I'm going to take you there with me today. Uh, we're going to do today's show on surf fishing, and I'll be using a lot of material from the trip that I just had, which was one of the best surf fishing trips I've ever had. I've had days that are as good or better than any of the days that I had while I was there. Uh, I've never had like a week and a half where every day was that good every day, period. It was it was pretty fantastic. And I think some of it is a, a really duh way of fishing in the surf with live shrimp that I, I really knew about for a long time, but never really just like said, this is what I'm doing, I'm going to keep doing this, and I'm not going to do anything else. And uh, it really paid off. And I'll talk about that. I'll talk about surf fishing in general, how to find a place to go, combining surf fishing trips, like if you're going to go for three or four days or more, and then maybe taking one day with a guide going offshore or going inshore fishing or something and you know how to plan that out and things like that. Uh, what to take with you from a safety standpoint, how to take care of yourself, look after yourself while you're there because it is an environment where it's easy to get overheated, dehydrated, etc., especially when you're wade fishing. You don't know that you're, you're overheated often or you don't know that you're dehydrated often. The salt, the sun, all that stuff. And it's a hell of a lot of fun and a hell of a lot of stuff that's out there and a lot of cool stuff you can do with it, ways to cook it, what you should eat and what maybe ain't worth eating and all kinds of cool stuff like that. Uh, We'll talk about all that more in just a bit. Before we get into all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits.com has been a sponsor of the Survival Podcast for a very long time. I think we... We picked up knife kits in the first year that we started having sponsors. So that would be about nine years they've been with us. Uh, and we stick with them, and they stick with us. It's a great relationship. Uh, we uh, we do vet our sponsors very aggressively, and when we vetted knife kits, one of the places we checked were like all the blade forms and stuff like that. They just had a stellar reputation uh, in all the years that I've, I've worked with them. The total number of complaints I had about them is zero. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of... You know, even some of our really good sponsors, occasionally it's some, uh, nothing. I mean, just just absolutely phenomenal service, incredible selection, and they can help you learn to make knives. If you want to start out with the real easy thing, kits kind of tips that off, right? Like when you're a kid and you got kit models and stuff like that, and maybe you start out with a snap-together model and you moved up over time to more complex things. Knife kits will let you do that. They can sell you really cool exotic raw materials. You can forge your own blades with some of their steel. You name it, they've got all kinds of cool stuff. Or you can buy kind of a prefab kit where you do the final fit and finishing. 
If you need some help, they have uh, books and DVDs, and they have people that will answer the phone and help you out if you're not sure what you need to do to get started. A lot of cool stuff with Kydex, man, you name it, they've got it. It's all there at KnifeKits.com, and they do a discount for you guys that are members of the MSB. Next up today, ready-made resources. I used to be a business consultant. I did a lot of things in my life, but for about 10 years of my life, it was that piece of it was in there. And one of the things that I would always talk to people about with their marketing, they say, well, what's our message? I'd say, well, what do you do? And a lot of times they didn't really know what they did, but when you drove them down, like, tell me what you do in, in a phrase. Okay, then say what you do. That's your marketing. And that's what ready-made resources has in their name. They say what they do, and they do what they say. All the resources you need ready-made and ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website for your prepping needs. Solar, wind, photovoltaic, long-term food storage stuff to store your own food. The practical, the tactical, the guns to the guards. It's like a. It's like if there was a, a you know, like a, a supermarket for preparedness items. It would be ready-made resources. You should check them out today. And they also offer a discount for members of the MSB. So check them out on the benefits page of your MSB if you are a member, and you should be, uh, before you join or before you buy anything from ready-made resources. Sorry there. Next up, let's take a look at a year from history. We're up to the year 141 A.D. with David Verne at TSP Wiki as we take our walk through history together. We have a wild comet appears. Halley's Comet appears this year and is written about in Chinese and Indian records. The Greco-Romans never recorded comet appearances and merely speculated on what they were, uh, with the most accepted theory claiming that they were atmospheric disturbances caused by the sun. Comets, comets were seen as omens, though not necessarily bad omens. When a comet appeared near Julius Caesar's death, it was seen as a sign of his divinity. My take by David Verne. I had a history professor who made the argument that the type of weird phenomena that people claim to see were influenced by a person's culture. For example, stories about abduction have always been around in medieval ages. People blame fairies for abducting people. But in modern times where people don't believe in magic, aliens are blamed. It's aliens, man. It's aliens. We've all seen the picture. Uh, it's the same with comets. The ancients saw the comets as omens, whereas modern man has turned to more scientific reasons to fear comets. When Halley's Comet reappeared in 1910, toxic gas was discovered in its tail, and it passed close enough to Earth to pass through the tail. Even though astronomers explained the gas would be dissipated by the atmosphere, people bought gas masks, anti-comet pills, anti-comet umbrellas to protect themselves. Circumstances and reasons might be different. The stories always have the same basic elements. When somebody says they have a comet umbrella, does anybody else see Wiley e. Coyote with a giant rock about to fall on his head putting up the little umbrella? Does anybody else? I, that's, that's what I thought of. Um, you know, when, when, when I read this by David Verne and the alien abductions and the fairy abductions and stuff like that and how it's tied to culture, what I think of is a phenomenon uh, known as sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis is where the mind becomes awake and the eyes open and you can see where you are in the room that you're in, but your body won't move. And there's a lot of different ways this can happen. It's a natural phenomenon. There's experiments that have been done with certain magnetic frequencies uh, around the brain that cause this to happen. And at that point, one is very subjective to suggestion and wake dreaming. 
So in the past, there was a belief, there was like one of the things that was believed in was a thing called the sea hag, and she came and sat on your chest and tried to steal your breath. So people would have an experience of this, this sleep paralysis, and they would see and believe it was the sea hag because it was already in their head that that's what did this. And there were other types of things that would happen to people through various cultures that we can now look back and go, okay, that's, that's sleep paralysis. And in modern times, there's people that believe they were abducted by aliens, and I believe that some of these people are fruit bat crazy. I believe some of these people are full of shit attention seekers, but I believe there's some of them that have experienced that phenomenon known as sleep paralysis. That if you gave them a lie detector test, they'll pass it. They'd pass it every single time because they believe it, not because they're crazy, but because it was so real to them. And I think if you've never, and I have experienced sleep paralysis, fortunately for me, I didn't know what it was, so it didn't cause any kind of psychotic event for me. It's actually kind of cool because if you end up in it and you know what it is, you can create whatever you want in your dreams. It's a, the ultimate in lucid dreams. But if uh, if you don't know any better, whatever the thing is that you would most fear would be what would be there. It's kind of like there was an old science fiction film called Monsters from the Id. Uh, and it is it is uh, one of three forms of the psyche. It's the, the inner psyche, the subconscious mind. And it, it, it's that thing that, that preys upon us. And it's also what the great horror and sci-fi writers always knew, that the thing that you don't really completely understand or don't really see is more frightening than the thing that you do see. Stephen King is kind of a, a master of that. So the more things change, the more they stay the same, and, and the more we are innately what we are as human beings, and our minds are subject to being deceived whether it be through natural phenomenon or whether it be something like government deception. Just my thoughts on that. With that, let's go ahead and get into uh, the main topic today. I, I did want to do this because I just got back from 10 days of it and it's on my mind. I also looked at the last time that I talked about surf fishing was 2014. That's four years ago, and you know we we try to keep a variety of topics here, but we are going to revisit certain topics from time to time, especially things that are particularly germane to being able to feed yourself. And I think fishing's one of them. And while many of you like me, if you want to go surf fishing, it's car ride to say the least. Now, I just spent you know uh, ten days on Sanibel Island. That's an airplane ride. I'm not taking that car drive. That's too far. Uh, for it to make sense. But, I mean, I can be down to the Texas coast in about four and a half hours. Uh, but it's not something I can just do every weekend or every other weekend. And there's a cost associated with it. But most uh, of the country actually lives, and this is the truth, by population density within two hours of some type of surf fishing opportunity. Because our population density is our heaviest near the coast. And a lot of people that don't think of themselves as living near the beach, if you can drive two hours and be somewhere, you're not that far away from it. I mean, I, I used to drive more than two hours counting two, going and coming to, to work every day. When I, used to, when I first started doing the show, I had a 55-mile drive, but in the traffic around here, that could result in an hour and a half or, or more per direction. So I might spend three hours in the car. So if you've got to spend two hours to get to the beach, I don't, I don't see it as that far away. And I see it as something you can integrate in your life if you want to. And there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of food that can be acquired there, and if you do it smartly, it can be very low to almost no cost uh, compared to going to the store and buying it. So I think it's a, a subsistence and survival topic in addition to an outdoor topic. And 
you know, we probably should do more outdoor topics on the show, except a lot of them don't lend themselves that well to audio, right? Because, like, talking about making a friction fire in audio isn't really very exciting. But I'm going to try to make fishing kind of exciting. Let me tell you a little bit about this trip that I just had. Um, we, uh, we flew into Sanibel on, I think it was a Wednesday, And uh, it was uh, early enough in the day that we pretty much got a full day at the beach and uh, fished mostly in the afternoon that day and caught mostly hardhead catfish and whiting. And the surf was pretty rough and the tides weren't exactly right. But I didn't really care because I had a rod in the water and specifically in the salt water again. And uh, that led to discovering a pattern that I I'm really hadn't been that heavily familiar with um, in the coming days on Sanibel Island, and that is you know, this time of year, it, it's insane to me that a body of water the size of the Gulf of Mexico changed temperature during the day. It, it really is. Like I, I'm used to lakes, they take a long time to warm up, and then they take a long time to cool down. Uh, with the water moving in and out and the, the large, long, shallow flats on the coast, you go out there in the morning and you step in that water, I'm talking like 6, 6.30 in the morning, And you're thinking, for a half a second, that's that's a little bit cold. I don't know if I want to go in there. And then, you know, once you get in there, it's not cold at all. It just feels cool compared to the, the surrounding air, I guess. Uh, and it actually is very comfortable. You go in that water about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it, it, it feels like a dadgone bathroom or a bathtub. I mean, it's warm. It's not hot, but it's warm. And that's going to drive oxygen down. That's going to drive the, the, the fish kind of out and... Uh, so I've discovered a pattern. I'll talk a little bit more, but it, it was really like I've always followed the tides, and I've always advised people kind of fishing the incoming tides as being one of the best bets uh, for uh, for fishing in the surf. But what I really found this time was the, the the cool mornings. Now I think the evenings would have been pretty good, but I kind of dedicated my evenings to wife time. Uh, so the surf did calm quite a bit in the evenings, like an hour, hour and a half before dark type of thing. I definitely think shark fishing is great in the evening on the coast. Uh, but I, I discovered, like, basically these fish were hitting from about 6 o'clock in the morning up till about noon. And they were hitting heavy from about 6 to 10. And, and what I mean by heavy is I would cast and, bef and, and start a slow retrieve with this live shrimp rig that I'll talk about in a bit. And almost every cast, I either caught a fish or lost a bait. And within, within a minute or less of beginning uh, the slow retrieve that I'll talk about, um, going through four or five dozen live shrimp in a morning uh, and catching a, a tremendous variety of fish. And then when that warm water came in, they just kind of went away. And, it really, and I, you know, I'd walk the beach with Dorothy, sit on the, the chair and read a book, go to the swimming pool and get a drink from the bar and just hang out for the rest of the day and go shell hunting or whatever. And it, it worked out really good uh, that, that you know, that pattern was there and I was able to identify it and splitting my time up accordingly. So I, I, I think that every time you, you engage in fishing, if you're actually being exploratory in what you're doing, you learn and discover new things. And that was kind of the big takeaway I had this time. What I actually want to start out with, though, for folks is – kind of my basic gear and uh, what I like to fish with and, and how that's kind of evolved since the last time that um, I did this. 
I, I, I am not big on the super heavy surf rods. I think there's a place for those. And when we start talking about maybe catching bigger fish like sharks or whatever, I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. But in the end, most of the fish that I catch in the surf are anywhere from a half pound to several pounds. And you might even, you know, I, I had one snook on this time that I didn't, wasn't able to land because he wasn't actually hooked. Uh, I'll explain it later, but that, that fish was, was 35 pounds if he was a pound. Um, I thought it was a daggone shark when he hit. And that gal saved the story. But uh, even a fish that size, it, with, with the right gear, uh, a medium action to even a medium light action rod uh, with a high quality mono or a good braid with fluorocarbon leader, um, you can land very large fish if you happen to catch one, assuming it doesn't have teeth that cuts the line, and we'll talk about that today too. On the surf, easier than just about anywhere. And the reason for that is you've got a beach that's basically shallow water and you got waves constantly kind of ebbing and flowing. And you can, once you kind of tire that fish out, play it out and get it into the shallow water, you just kind of lead it up onto the beach and wait for a wave to come and you kind of take it up to where it's going to be beached. And when the wave goes away, the fish is laying on the ground. And that's kind of a cheat that's hard to do anywhere. Even most lakes, you know, you've got rocks and stubble and things that can grab a line or whatever and mess it up where a beach you got that nice you know unless you're some kind of rocky shore or something it's it's really easy to do so I, I i'm not big on sitting here using this rod that's designed for landing you know 40 pound fish well 90 percent of the fish i'm catching are going to be you know one to four pound fish it's just not a lot of fun and it's a lot of overkill and it, it, you lose a lot of sensitivity now my go-to rod for travel has become the Browning Safari Rod. I have a four-piece Browning Safari Rod. Uh, I think it's six-and-a-half-foot one assembled. goes in a tube. I love those rods for travel. I have an old rod. I can't even remember the name of the company made it by now, but it's, it's like 70 years old. It was one of the first multi-piece rods. It's like a seven-foot uh, fast-action rod designed to be used as a spinning rod or uh, a fly rod that I actually picked up on eBay. Uh, it was in pretty good shape for how old it is. And so for travel, I do like those types of rods. I do not like the telescopic rods for surf fishing. I think they're fine for your lighter fish in freshwater environments. I have a little truck kit that I have quite a few telescopic rods in I've recommended before. Um, but they have their limits on the size of the fish that you can catch with them. And when you're looking at surf fishing, there's always the potential that something that's, you know, 12, 15, 20 pounds is going to be on there, and I don't have a lot of uh, faith in the capacity of those those telescopic rods with as much hollow stuff's going on there for them not to break. So I recommend if you're going to do a travel rod, a good multi-piece rod. Otherwise, you know, it's hard to beat, you know, a medium light action six to seven foot two-piece ugly stick. I mean, you know, that's kind of where you want to be looking at. Your reels, I like to be in the Mitchell 300, you know, uh, Akuma uh, 30 variety size of, of reel because uh, they balance well with those medium to medium light action rods. It gives you a lot of feel. Uh, I'm a very big believer uh, when it comes to surf fishing and, and, and being able to quickly replace hooks and lines and things like that, and not getting twisted up. So I'm a big believer in snap swivels. 
I generally will run my line to like a number seven or number five snap swivel. And I will tie that snap swivel on with a palmer knot, which I'm not going to really try to explain on the air, but it's not the typical fishing knot with like five wraps and go through that most people use. Uh, it's basically an overhand loop and you pull through. It's a very, very strong knot. Uh, trim off the, the, the trailing end and, and you've got a, a great set up there and one of the things that I've taken to do and I'll take another snap swivel and I'll thread that behind the terminal swivel which is the one that's tied to the line so that it slides up and down and it's just a little, the, the littlest snap swivel I can get for this and the reason I'll do that is because then I can take a casting sinker the ones that look like a little sandbag that have a little eye on them and I can attach it to that moving swivel And what that lets me do is I can use a quarter or an eighth ounce casting sinker, and if the surf picks up and it gets to a heavier surf, and I need to go to a half ounce sinker, I can take that off and put it, you know, go on there with you know another quarter ounce or a half ounce sinker and have more weight. My preference has always been to use the least amount of weight that I can to maintain contact and feel with the bait and put the bait where it needs to be. Which mostly, not always, but mostly in the surf, it's going to be on the bottom uh, and bouncing the bottom and maybe a little bit in the midwater and sometimes up high, but you can do that just by how you hold and retrieve. So it gives us a lot of flexibility. If there's a reason, for, it's like it's really calm, maybe there's a little bit of a drift current or something like that, and I want to free line a bait, I just take that weight off. I don't have to now cut the line or what have you. So I like snap swivels. I generally use a premium monofilament, um, and you pick your brand of that. I, I don't get real anal about it. Uh, but Strand makes good line, I'll just say that. It's made in America. In the 10 to 14-pound range. I also like braids, but I've stuck mostly to monofilament line. Again, for sinkers, I generally like bait casting sinkers. Again, there's a, a couple different varieties of these, but the ones I'm talking about look like little mini sandbags. Uh, I get a lot of utility out of those, and by either putting them on the line behind a snap swivel or putting them on a snap swivel behind a snap swivel where they'll slide up and down, that lets that fish, when it picks up that bait, begin to leave, not necessarily feel the weight of that sinker. I did pick up a pretty cool tr uh, tip from a guide that I was with, He was using more of the oval-style sinkers. You would generally have a uh, something like a, a swivel or a snap swivel, and this the line just goes through the one hole in it. It's just an oval, kind of shaped almost like a football without points on it. And then that comes up against that, that snap swivel, and you have a leader that comes down from there. What he was doing, because he was using uh, fluorocarbon leaders and braided line and no swivels, is on the leader itself, he had that line, and he simply ran the line through it and looped it back around so it had one loop going through it. And then that let him slide the, that weight and set any distance he wanted from the hook with it. And every once in a while it might come loose or whatever, but in general just the weight itself held itself there. It's maybe a little hard to explain, but uh, I just want to throw that in there because I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, for hooks, I generally uh, carry bait holder hooks that are snelled. And that means they're on a piece of fluorocarbon or monofilament line. The hook's tied. There's a loop in the other end of the line or a small swivel that can attach to your snap swivel. And I really like snelled hooks 
because you get fish in the surf no matter what you do that swallow the hook. And now you're going to cut the line. Now you got to tie on a new hook. If you have snelled hooks, you open your snap swivel, pull your snell off, grab another snell, put it on, you're back out there. Uh, inevitably, you'll catch something that will really scar up your leader. Uh, I had a snook that you know, didn't break the line or anything, and they don't really have teeth. They have really sandpaper-like teeth, and he really frayed up that leader to what larger fish may have been able to then use one of those nicks to, to, to get off and cut it. So you want to replace that leader. If you're using snelled hooks, it's really fast. If Even if you're making your own snells up, uh, which we'll talk about that in a little bit, um, the fact that they're already done, you do that while you're sitting at home drinking a beer, watching TV or something, watching the Outdoor Channel and dreaming about being at the beach, uh, instead of buying them and save money that way, well, they're still made up and ready to go. It's still open a snap swivel, bang. The other thing is, inevitably, you'll be out there, you'll be fishing something like a 2 aught hook, you'll be dealing with bait thieves. And you'll want to drop down, to, let's say, from a 2 aught to a number 2 or a number 4, smaller hook. Well, it's really quick to swap it out. It's also really quick then to swap out to run uh, artificial lures or go to a completely different kind of rigging. And flexibility in the surf, to me, is what it's all about. Conditions change, different fish come in, being able to quickly swap to something else makes a lot of sense. This is why I also like having a second rod rigged up completely differently, uh, maybe set up with like a DOA shrimp or something, artificial lure or something like that on it, so that if that comes in, you know, or a, a topwater or something like that, artificial, so if that becomes necessary, you're not dicking around, I don't want to swivel, I'm cutting this, I'm retying that. It's basically you go up to wherever you're keeping your shit far enough that the tide doesn't get up and get it all soaking wet, and you throw down one rod, pick up another, and you're, you're back out. I do that in my boat uh, for freshwater fishing. I have three or four different primary riggings that I use, and I have a rod already rigged up with each one, so you can kind of carry that forward, especially when you're not going on an airplane. Um, I became a really big fan over the last couple seasons of circle hooks. Uh, circle hooks make you have to, if you're a bass fisherman, long-term cat fisherman, things like that, they make you have to fight your instincts. So with a J-hook or a lot of typical uh, artificial riggings or whatever, you get that bump, you think that fish has in his mouth, and you set that hook. We used to say, cross his eyes for him, you know. Uh, with a circle hook, you just kind of reel, maybe arch the, the rod back, and the fish moving you know, away from you and that line tightening up just causes that hook to turn and, and hook into the fish. People say this will prevent the fish from swallowing the hook. Uh, that's in it depends. There's no doubt you'll get less swallows with circle hooks, which is one of the reasons I like them. But, you know, if you're out fishing a, a, a medium to small uh, live shrimp on a 2 aught circle hook and a snook takes it, he's probably swallowed it instantly because he's going to open his mouth like a bass and go, Poop! And it, so you're not going to get 100% mouth and lip hooks with every type of bait and every type of fish in every situation with circle hooks, but you'll get more. But once you kind of get that rhythm down, especially if you're using a, a, even a very slow retrieve, which is what I went to on this trip, so we're casting out, we're finding that bait with feeling, and then we begin a retrieve. And the, what I retrieve I was doing, I, what I would describe describing to people who were asking me how I was catching so many fish, I'd say, if you, if, you, if you reeled the line in any slower, you'd fall asleep. But that means you always have contact with it. So you feel that bump. If it's just a bump, then it's just a bump. But if it actually is a pickup, you feel that. 
through the line through the rod. You just kind of reel and lean the rod back, and man, the the hookup percentage I had, uh, specifically with you know mouth and lip hooks that were easy to remove, even on hardhead catfish, which are notorious swallowers of bait, was really really good. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of circle hooks, specifically snelled or self-snelled. Again, that would mean having a leader tied to it. And I, I, in the surf, I've also over the last few years become very fond of using a fluorocarbon leader, fluorocarbon versus monofilament. I'm not a huge fan of, of, of you know filling a reel up with fluorocarbon. It's expensive, and it, I don't really like the way it plays out. A good quality monofilament or braid on the reel with a fluorocarbon leader um, I will admit that I use a lot of the Eagle Claw snell hooks because they're cheap and readily available at every store. Those are monofilament, but I've gotten more and more to go to with fluorocarbon leaders in the surf. Um, there's a pre-tied rig uh, made by a company called Owner. It's called the Owner Ghost Rig, and they make them with down to about a uh, a, a four circle. I think a number two or a four circle hook, which is fairly small for a circle hook up to about a 4 aught, which is fairly large. I used those a lot this trip to Sanibel because the bait shop I was getting my shrimp from had them, and it saved me time while I was on vacation. Uh, they have a small swivel on the top to, to attach to your, your main line, whether it be braid or it be a snap swivel or however you're doing it, uh, and they worked fantastically. I, I think the number of bites I had using fluorocarbon versus monofilament made me a complete believer in fluoro for many reasons. Uh, durability, a little bit of give that really helps with that hook set. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm a believer now, and I would say that unless I didn't have the opportunity because I didn't have it, I'm going to do all of my surf fishing other than steel leaders with fluorocarbon leaders. So I, I really recommend that now. For bait, I've always been a huge fan of dead bait. Uh, shrimp, squid, etc. Cut whiting. A lot of times, if I if I don't have access to live bait, I will simply go to a place like Walmart. And what you're looking for there is uh, raw shrimp, and they generally sell like a seven, eight ounce package in the freezer of like large size raw shrimp you'd go home and cook for like five bucks. And that's cheaper than buying the bait shrimp, which are always kind of mushy and don't hold together. And one of those shrimp could generally be cut into two to three pieces of cut bait. If you're fishing the shore in many locations, one of the most common fish you'll catch using that for bait is going to be whiting. Uh, the cooler name they have is a gulf kingfish. Uh, but since that gets confused with a much cooler fish, which is the king mackerel, I tend to just call them what everybody else does commonly, whiting. And when you catch smaller whiting, you fillet those guys and cut them into little pieces, and they stay on better than even shrimp, and you catch almost anything using that. I've caught snook. I've caught black-tipped shark. I've caught Spanish mackerel. Um, I've caught speckled trout. I've caught almost anything that I've ever caught, I've also caught on cut bait, that being, again, like uh, cut-up whiting, cut-up squid, cut-up shrimp, cut-up mullet whatever you can get your hands on. What's nice about that approach is you can go down the coast with one little bag of shrimp and generally using what you're catching, fish all day without buying any other bait. And there is some appealing to that. And with the whiting, whiting's one of the best eating fish there is. A lot of people don't keep them and eat them. And I, 
I'll talk about some ways to prepare fish in a little bit that, that make fish like whiting easier to deal with. Um, but, you know, you get a nice whiting. Let's say a one-pound whiting. You get two nice little fillets off him. Well, when you cut the fillets, you end up with the rib bones. Well, you can cut those rib bones out and save a little bit of meat, but not much. It really isn't worth doing. So you fillet that fish, you cut those rib bones out as a whole section, and that little rib section be cut up into two or three baits. You got two of them from each side, so you're talking four to six baits for each whiting you catch. And then you can catch more whiting, you can catch mackerel. You see what I'm saying? Like, so there's a perpetual nature to that. That said, this trip was the first time that I really said, you know, I'm going to spend some money, four bucks a dozen, and buy live shrimp. The results were so much better that if it's an option, if it's not cost prohibitive, I recommend that you try it. And, and the rig that I came up with, and I tried several different ways of using them, but this was the most effective, was again that quarter-ounce casting sinker behind a snap swivel. And then about an 18-inch fluorocarbon leader to a number uh, one-aught circle hook. Ended up being about the best all-around size for me to use. And then hooking that shrimp through the head, a place called a carapace, um, sideways. You can kind of hook them up under the chin, and they seem to swim a little more natural like that, but you, you seem to kill them faster, and they fall off faster, get stolen faster. You can hook them through the tail. There's a bunch of ways you can hook them. But hook that sideways way. They stayed on there pretty dead gone good. And, again, the way I was fishing this rig was basically figuring out by getting hits on retreats kind of where the fish were, were holding. And at times they were holding like six foot from where the you were being standing in, in dry land, and other times they were holding pretty far out, maybe 40, 50 yards out. So when they were far out, I was wading out up to my neck and casting, uh, and then opening the bale and walking backwards to where I was about waist deep in the water and uh, then beginning my retrieve and other situations just casting to wherever I thought needed to be. Let that bait hit the bottom. And then again, I was reeling that line in very slowly. Um, you know, uh, Again, the way I described it was if you went any slower, you'd fall asleep because you'd get bored. This was much more effective, and there were a bunch of people fishing using pretty much the same bait, the same rig. But what they were doing was what everybody does, which they were casting out. They are using enough weight to hold that thing down, or I was using enough weight. If I tried to do that, I was not staying in contact with the bait and just leaving it there. Uh, and they, I'm not saying they weren't catching fish, but there wasn't anybody on that beach that, that came close to catching the sheer numbers, variety of species, big fish, small fish, anything that I was getting until they came to me and asked me and I told them what I was doing. And so that slow retrieve, that covers more water, but again, it kept you in contact with the bait. So you, you know, you feel that hit and make that connection. Now, there were times when certain smaller fish would move in. And the one thing about live shrimp, a bigger fish, it's not a problem because they just take it and you, you usually get your hook up. But when you get smaller fish, they're kind of hitting them quickly and aggressively, you'll lose more baits with live shrimp than dead shrimp. So there was times when, okay, friggin' hardhead catfish have moved in, and they're, they're not really smacking it, so I'm going to save my shrimp for a while, and I'd throw out some cut squid or whatever until uh, I figured that kind of little wave of those guys had passed, and I'd go back to my live shrimp. But that worked really good, so much so that 
you know, I will be using that method as my primary discovery method for what's in the surf every trip I take from now on. When, you, when it comes to stepping up to bigger fish, bigger rods, heavy action, medium heavy action, you know, uh, full heavy action, that type of thing, uh, anything from six foot to 12 foot rods I've seen. Uh, braided line to me is almost a must have if you're going for really big fish because it lets you get a lot higher in your test or how much weight that line can hold while minimizing diameter. Uh, something like an 80 pound braid is a good place to go with like medium size to smaller sharks. Uh, you know, we're talking fish that are 20 to 100 pounds. Uh, getting up over that, you kind of get into specialty gear that you need. Uh, you really have to move to steel leaders with some of your larger fish, some of your toothier fish. And you can get prefabbed braided leaders, and there, there's nothing wrong with them with smaller fish. As you get up to bigger fish, you really want to get into either custom tackle that's made for these bigger sharks and, and other toothy fish, or learn to make your own. And that's beyond the scope of this show. The big thing I want to talk about with steel leaders is I did get quite a few bite-offs. And when I say quite a few, I mean two or three a day. Where I'd hook something, and I'd be hooked up, and that fish would be gone. And it wouldn't be a snap or a break just because it was a large fish. It would, it would just feel like somebody took a pair of scissors and cut it, which is pretty much what had happened. These were most likely small black tips based on what was in the water. Barracuda will do that. Bluefish with the, uh, the the test of fluorocarbon I was using probably would have been capable. Of, they're pretty toothy. Uh, some larger mackerel will will cut line on you. The, the instinct then is, well, I got bit off and it was a big fish, and I want to catch big fish. I'll put steel leaders on. What happens is if you're catching a lot of other fish, uh, and, and give, I'll just give you an example of the the sheer variety of fish. This is. Not what I caught when I went out with a guide in a boat. This is from the shore over a 10-day period, and there are multiples of each one just to kind of you know drive home the, uh, the just how good the action was here. I caught Cerro mackerel, which was a new fish for me. I'd never heard of before. Uh, Spanish mackerel, which I've caught plenty of times. Snook. Caught some ladyfish, which people consider trash fish. I just love catching them. I wouldn't eat one, but they're great bait, and they're just a... A beautiful little fish in the morning when the sun's up and they're dancing on the water for you. Tons of whiting. I mean, I, if I would have driven, I could have come home with a cooler full of whiting, maybe a cooler full of whiting fillets. Uh, I mean, it was, it was that many whiting. Um, tons of hardhead catfish, drac creval, uh, blue runners, uh, and speckled sea trout. And, and some other stuff like that I didn't put on the list, like pigfish and pinfish and other little bait fish and stuff that picked up here and there. Um, so there's a lot of variety there, and most of those fish, in fact, just about all of them, uh, are either not going to hit or be a lot less likely to hit if you're running a steel leader. It, it doesn't look right to them. It's it's, it's a funky-looking thing. I don't like this. I don't trust this. So it really hurts your your catch rate on, on these you know more common fish that we generally target in the surf. Sharks generally don't care. Uh, so if you're going to target sharks, you know, that's that's fine. But I just want to kind of point that out. really like to move to much larger hooks, 4 aught and up of circle or kale hook variety. And as you get into even bigger fish, you want to look at not just the size of the hook, but the thickness of the hook. 
some fairly, you know, the size of the hook is will be this number, number four ought, for instance, which is a four slash zero. Um, that's the gap in the hook. There's a standard size that is a four ought. But then the gauge of the steel is another thing. You can have a very thin, narrow steel, or you can have a much thicker steel in that same size hook. As you get into larger fish, one of the problems with that the the more narrow steel is they'll actually straighten the hook out on you. So that's something else you got to look at as you move into targeting bigger fish. Uh, bigger baits, obviously. Uh, this, now I'll tell you the story of the snook. So each morning was kind of like, who, who shows up when? So I'd go out early in the morning, and I'd pick up a few cats or some whiting, uh, and then all of a sudden I'd start picking up Jack Crevel, uh, anything from little, you know, little bitty ones about like four to six inches up to maybe a foot, foot and a half. And, you know, a foot and a half Jack Crevel is a bruiser of a fish. They punch way above their weight. They're fun to catch. Um, and, and then, you know, maybe I'd pick up some mackerel, and then it, all of a sudden the whiting were everywhere, and I was catching whiting left and right, and then the, the, the serral mackerel would come in, and maybe I'd pick a couple of trout out, and then the whiting would be back, and then it kind of started to ebb off, and it'd be catfish, and it's time to go hang out with the wife, and the water got warm. And it was kind of like different families showing up in waves. Uh, but at one point, I'm out there fishing, and I'm, hitting, I'm catching these little jacks, and these jacks are about... Uh, I'd say 8 to 10 inches. And so, again, they, they're fun, even when they're that small. Like, you hook one, you're like, ah, that seems like a decent fish. You start reeling in, you're like, my God, look at that little thing. And you can see it in the water because it's clear, and it's like, how's that little dadgone thing pulling so hard? They really are a, an impressive fighting fish. So I'd let them play around on that light rod. Well, I'm letting this fish play around. And I see this huge fish coming like a bullet, and I mean moving straight in on this little jack that I'm fighting. It's maybe 15 feet away from me at this point and up on the surface. And I figure it's a black tip shark or maybe a small bull shark or a lemon shark or something like that. And it just smacks it. And I expect immediately the line to cut or the fish to be cut in half. Because sharks, a lot of times, instead of taking the whole fish, they'll, they'll just bite right through the middle of it. That's what happened on my guided trip with a with a bigger jack. Well no, he this fish inhales this uh this jack, just just disappears and just takes off and the reel just bzz, bzz, like that. I'm like, oh hell yeah. So I thought I was hooked up. So I start you know fighting this thing and gingerly because this is a big fish and I'm on this you know medium light action rod with 10 pound line and uh, getting a lot of drag, and finally this fish comes up, and like like a half jump, head comes out and flops, and it's a snook. And this is, I mean, this this fish just swallowed a hole, you know, about a 10-inch Jack Crevel. So this is a big fish, and I'm like, oh, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I'm going to be able to land this, I'm sure going to try. Well, a couple seconds later, he comes completely out of the water, just barely his tail touching it, and boom just spits that jack out. And what had happened is he had swallowed it all the way down into his stomach, and that's why it was holding him. And when he got up, he just basically regurgitated it, and that hook never touched the snook, and he spit it out. Well, I, I reel this Jack Creval in, and he's kind of scuffed up a little bit, but he's alive and well. And I take him off and throw him in the water, and I'm like, dude, you got a story to tell. Like, 
That's what I love about surf fishing. You just don't know what's going to happen, what's going to show up, that type of thing. But it makes the point, bigger bait, bigger fish. That said, I've been out with a guide one time. We were drift fishing for, you know, um, speck trout and whatever, you know, redfish or whatever. And I had on a, uh, a thread-thin herring. We call them white baits. It was probably close to six inches long. So I'm thinking, if I catch something on this fish, it's going to be pretty big. And all of a sudden, boom, something just nails it. And I really it was about a 10-inch speck trout. You know, eating a fish is only four inches smaller than he is. So saltwater fish, pretty aggressive. But in general, bigger bait, bigger fish. And I was unable to get any live thread thins or anything like that. I really believe I would have caught a lot more snook if I had done so. Still, I caught, I think, four total snook plus the one that spit the jack out. But bigger fish, bigger bait. Never buy rod holders. Generally, when people are going for these bigger fish, you set up two rods, four rods, whatever. You put them in rod holders. You use a heavy weight so that it will hold where you put it. And then you set you know, either a light drag or a, a bait manager where that line can come out. And you sit back and drink a beer under an umbrella and you watch your rods. Or if it's at night, maybe you have a little campfire and you cook some food and you watch your rods. Um, and they make all kinds of commercial rod holders to do this. I take a piece of uh, 10-foot stick of, of PVC, generally an inch and a quarter is about perfect size. And right in the middle, I cut a straight angle on it. So like a 45-degree, not a straight angle, a 45-degree angle. So you end up with two identical pieces with points. You take a rubber mallet, stick that thing in the, in the, in the sand, and start pounding. Pound it about two foot in. you got a three-foot-high rod holder. Stick the end of your rod in there, and you're good. Uh, and, and, you know, that piece of pipe someday can still be used as a piece of pipe. You cut the, the angle off it, you can throw a fitting on it, and it, it's good to go. So uh, that's the rod holders that I like to use. And those are useful not just when you're fishing and for bigger bait. You don't want sand in your reel, and you don't want salt water in your reel. So a lot of times when I'm driving, if I have rod holders with me that I've made like that, even if I'm not fishing with them, that rod or two that I have in reserve, wherever we have kind of all our stuff set up, I'll pound those in the ground back there and just stick those rods in them. That way they stay out of the way. They're vertical. They take up no space. They don't get tangled. They don't get wrapped up around people. Nobody steps on them. They don't get water in the reel. They don't get salt in the reel. They don't get sand in the reel. So that's a little tip there as well. With bigger fish, it's a lot of fun to have a paddle board, a small boat, surfboard, etc., uh, a lot of times the best time to do shark fishing is the evening into the, 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 the you know, uh, the, the, you know, right before sunset up till about midnight is kind of really a great time for shark fishing. They come in a lot of times, especially when the moon's up to feed, um, at night. And if you have, you know, two or three guys with a couple rods apiece, you can spread them out and kind of pick your angles with them. And you can get, you know, one guy with a paddleboard take those lines out 200, 300 yards. Uh, and, and maybe set some a little closer, a little further. That's really cool. Uh, it's not necessary, but it's functional and it works. It also depends on where you are, how well it works. One of the places I love to fish uh, for shark in Texas is a place called San Luis Pass. And uh, San Luis Pass is between, like, I guess it's Freeport Island and Galveston Island. Uh, but I don't really think it's called Freeport Island, but it's the island Freeport Beach is on. 
And the issue there is if you try to go out with a paddleboard or a surfboard there, you're going hell and gone because the current rips through there. So just because this is always a safety thing. Just because you have a surfboard or something doesn't mean you're 100% safe when it comes to estuaries, inlets, passes, and things like that. Generally, straight up surf, you know, like a beach, people swimming, you're, you're pretty damn safe with them. But, you know, always think about that. Uh, people asked while I was posting stuff on Facebook about the Sandblaster, which is this air cannon uh, that shoots baits like 300 or more yards. And did I have one with me? I think it would have been a pain in the ass to check his luggage. I probably would have got searched by the TSA or what have you. Um, but, uh, no, we didn't have one of those. I've thought about buying one. My buddy David keeps talking me out of it because he's like, I can tol I have He's like, I have crap in my garage. I know we could build one with. So I think they're an interesting idea. I do like that you can change the charge in them, and that can determine how far you shoot. So you could have the same type of scenario I was talking about. Well, maybe you got six rods out. Maybe your two furthest are kind of out at an angle on your wings and they're only out a hundred yards and then maybe your next two are a little less of an angle you know and they're out about a hundred and fifty and then your next two are kind of straight and and they're out like two hundred and maybe you even got two more close to the center that are straight out you know two hundred fifty yards or more that's kind of an interesting way to do that big fish thing in the evening the baits have to be frozen to use those so you need to have a cooler just for your baits Uh, they defrost in the water. You kind of rig them up, and you put them in this mold and freeze them. I think it's an interesting idea. I know that it works. I've heard from people that use it that it works. Um, so it's there. It's an idea. Another really cool idea that I think really would work well for a lot of people, if you're not just going out for a day, if you're going to rent a place or be on vacation and be there for three days, five days, a week or more, you know, You can hire a guide and go out for one day. That's exactly what I did. It was the third day we were there. I hired a guide. He picked me up at a boat ramp at 8 o'clock in the morning. I uh, hired him for six hours for $600. Bucks. Uh, he brought me back in at the end of that day. It pretty much passed that prime time for surf fishing. So instead of surf fishing that day, I went out with a guide. Uh, I caught a Goliath grouper in the 50-pound range. Uh, that was a bucket list item for me to catch a Goliath grouper. And I'll say something about those fish. They're amazing. I, 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 I almost can't describe what it's like to have one of them on the line. I know people catch, you know, 300 pounders and bigger. I, I can't even begin to think of what that would be like. But I've caught fish well over 100 pounds. This 50-pound grouper, I've never felt anything pull like that in my life. It was, it was like holding onto a winch while somebody tries to pull you with a pickup truck in low gear. They don't waste any energy. They don't jump. They don't do searing runs. They just want to go down and into something where they can break off. And that's and they pull down. And you kind of wait them out, maybe pull them up a little bit, wait them out. And as they take a break, you crank. And, and then it's on again. And, and I ended up with the, the rod on the, on the rail of the boat uh, on one knee. Uh, fighting this fish in. And when I brought it up, the guy goes, oh, well, it's a little one. I'm like, well, little for you. And, and I honestly had to take about 10 minutes. We were, It was hot as balls uh, sitting out in this open water over this reef that we were over. And uh, I, I needed about a 10-minute break in a bottle of water after that, that little Goliath grouper. Uh, we eventually pulled up there, went inland uh, on the other side of the island. We were just right off the island. I was fishing the whole time. 
Uh, one on the bay side, though, in Pine Island Sound, I caught a really nice black tip, about 20 pounds, right before we were ready to give up. Caught a few jacks and some bluefish and some other things while we were out there, but I told the guy, I, I'm, I've caught plenty of stuff, I'm catching plenty of stuff in the surf, I want, I want to do something that I'll, I'll remember. And he put me on that grouper, and it, it made my day. He's a really good dude. If you're ever in the Fort Myers, Sanibel area, and you want a guide, his name's Captain Noah. And I'll probably do a write-up on him and link to his site and everything in the future. Um, I've I, I fished with quite a few guides out there. He's now my go-to. I had a lot of fun with him. He was a good conversationalist. Uh, he worked hard for me. Uh, and he put in a little extra time to get me that black tip and you know didn't didn't charge me for it, didn't talk about the fact that he did it. I just noticed by the clock that he did it. Uh, and that said, I was ready to come in when I did. Um, and you experience things with guys you just won't, and you learn things you just won't. Like that little tip with the, the egg sinker, that's the right name for it, egg sinker, uh, where he just put the line through the egg sinker like you always did, looped it around, did it a second time, and then you know go to your terminal tackle, and it just slides up and down that leader. Uh, I, I've been fishing since I was five years old. I'm going to be 46 in August. Never seen that before in my life. Never caught a life grouper before in my life. Uh, it wasn't the biggest black tip I ever caught. I've caught a few that are bigger, but that was among the larger ones that I've caught. Uh, and then I got an experience. So we were fishing over this reef. We had some big cut baits out and stuff like that. And I'm just sitting there with white bait or threads and herrings um, fishing with a, a standard rod. And I get a hit, and I start reeling in. It's a pretty good fish, and it was a Jack Creval, uh, which is a fish that some people see as a trash fish. I don't. When they get big, they're really a great game fish, in my opinion. This fish was probably four pounds, which a, a four-pound Jack Creval on a medium rod, it gave you good tussle. So I'm reeling this fish in. I get him to where I can see him. I see it's a Jack Creval. And kind of like the Snook story, except it was a shark. And it wasn't a big shark. It was like a three-foot shark. Based on the shape of its Head, I would say it was probably a little bull, comes and boom and hits it and cuts it clean in half. Like I never even felt it pull. It was like like a giant pair of scissors, which is kind of what cuts the. All I got is the head and about a quarter of the body. Perfect clean cut through on this jack, and uh, that was cool. Just seeing that was cool, you know. Um, felt bad for the jack getting cut in half, but not that bad. And uh, so then we, we reel, I reel the head in, and we take the head off and bleed it out over the boat so it doesn't get a bunch of nasty blood in the guy's boat. We take that head, and we stick it on this huge hook in this heavy-duty rod and drop it over. Well, that's what we caught the Goliath grouper on. He ate the, 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 the front half of this jack. Uh, so that, you know, I wouldn't have had that without the guide. So I really think that... Hiring guides is, is is kind of a really cool thing to do on a multi-day trip. And, and you still get your surf fishing, and you keep your cost down. Because hiring a guide is expensive for a good one, uh, and they earn their money, so I don't complain about it. But, you know, I can't afford to spend four days in a row going out with a guide at $400 to $600 a day. Uh, and, and especially if I'm, I'm counting on any amount of fish being an offset, because i got to bring a lot of fish home for that. By the way, grouper was released, never even moved from the water. They're federally protected because uh, they were fished to almost extinction, and the black tip was let go even though they're pretty good food fish. I didn't really have the, um, the a way to use that much fish in the short period of time we were there, so it wasn't responsible to take that fish. Um, and, and, you know, don't keep everything, I guess, is a good conservation method. Uh, the basics of surf fishing, some things to think about. Guts and bars are your friend if they're there. 
So a sandbar, I think most people are familiar with what a sandbar is. Basically, when you walk out on the beach and it starts getting deeper and deeper and you think I'm going to be over my head and maybe you even have to swim a little bit so you're not, and then all of a sudden the ground starts coming up and next thing you know you're standing up to your knees, but you're 50 yards or 20 yards or 100 yards from shore, that's a sandbar. And a lot of beaches, you'll get multiple bars. You'll get a first bar that's pretty close, and then you'll get a second bar. You go back in the deep bar and come up another bar. Sometimes there's even a third bar, though. They're usually hard to get to on foot without real swimming. And then you end up with salt water in your reel, and that's not good, so you generally don't do it. So most people know what a bar is. Okay, and I'm not the one you drink in, right? The sandbar. Though I've been to a pretty cool bar for drinking called the sandbar. Uh, but then most people don't know what guts are. Unless they're surf fishermen. You don't really talk about that. The gut is the deep spot between the bar. So the gut would be, your first gut would be, you got your shore and you got a sandbar, and the deep spot in between there, generally just before you come up, would be your best part of that gut. But sometimes you get a cutaway on shore, and you got, like I said, I had times when I had whiting and I had mackerel stacked up just a couple feet from shore in a Basically a gut up against shore. Anywhere you have a deep kind of cut in the sand would be a gut. We go over that sandbar, and when the water gets deep again, that would be your second gut. When you get that set up, and you don't always have it, a lot of times that second gut is beautiful for fishing. Fish love that second gut. There's probably another bar out there that you can't get to, but even if there's not, that drop-off is a structure, and fish relate to structures and edges. So those are always things to look for. If they're not there, don't get don't get all worried about it. Try the technique with live bait or dead bait, casting to various locations with that slow retrieve, and try to find the fish. Saltwater fish are generally not solitary. Almost everything I talked about, jacks, mackerel, trout, whiting, hardhead catfish, you name it, they're shoaling fish. They travel in groups. So if you catch one... There's probably another one or thousand out there in that kind of area. In that kind. Now, sometimes there can be 10,000 of them, and they can be there for five minutes and gone because they're moving up or down the coast or in or out or something like that. But in general, once you find them, they're, they're kind of hanging there for a while. So using that, that retrieve method lets you cover a lot of water. It's a lot like artificial fishing for bass where you pull up to an edge and you fan cast. Because that lets you with that, you know, you cast straight to your your left. You do a retrieve. Then you cast, you know, a, a few degrees less, and then a few degrees less, and next thing you're 90 degrees to your target, and then you come out to that other angle. You make a big fan. That lets you explore all that water really, really quickly. It's kind of the same technique that you're using there. Um, on tides, incoming tides tend to be best, but that's not always the case. People say, "Well, I want to fish the high tide." Well, then you're going to fish outgoing tide. Because the what happens right after an outgoing tide? Or I mean, right after you get a high tide, well, the tide goes out, it comes in, reaches peak, starts going out. In general, not always, but in general, I've had my best bet surf fishing uh, about three hours into the incoming tide up to the high tide. So your low tide, a few hours after that, and that entire incoming period, especially when the surf is calm with an incoming tide. So incoming tide in the morning. Incoming tide in the evening uh, with calm surf. When you have calm conditions and incoming tides, generally that's when you do really well. The water's pretty clear then. 
That means fish can see. When fish can see and bait fish are around, they go into feeding mode. So that, that, that works for them. Um, it, it's important to understand tides, and not all tides are equal, right? Uh, and not all tides that are incoming are incoming rapidly or incoming slowly. Sometimes you get almost to what you call like a slack tide, and if it's the right time of day and conditions are right, that's a really good time to fish because it's easy to stay in contact with your bait because you don't have a lot of current. Is the tide on a true beach? Is it in a pass? I mean, do you have sandbars? Do you not have sandbars? Do you have two you know, sandbars with a pass in them? Now, this is a, can, can create kind of an undertow rip tide, so you got to be careful, but it can also be an interesting fishing structure where you have a sandbar and the sandbar stops. But maybe 20 feet later, the sandbar starts again. You have this deep cut in the sandbar. So you've got a gut with a cut. Yes, that's a thing. Um, you know, a tide is going to act a lot differently in that cut than it will in the gut. Because the gut has kind of a pressure reduction where it's the, the cut is like, it, it's just like your garden hose. Right? You turn your garden hose, the water just kind of slowly comes out. That's when you're far away from your cut in the gut. Of the of the uh, between the sandbars, you come down to the cut and you put your finger over half the hose and the pressure increases. Well, that outgoing tide in that cut is probably what did it in the first place, and it's going to increase its pressure and thereby the speed of the current. So you have to think about that when you're looking at your tides as well. I mentioned San Luis Pass. That's basically a giant version of this. You have two islands, and then you have a pass going from the ocean into the bay. You get tidal currents through there, they're extremely strong and frankly dangerous, but they move a lot of fish and a lot of bait, so you, they may present opportunities as well. So all of that has to be considered. But when you look up tides, there's a couple things to look at. Sometimes you'll see two tides in a day, sometimes you'll see four. This has to do with your lunar cycles and how they move the tides. Sometimes it looks like there's less tides, but it's just because of the spread of hours. It only shows maybe three tides this day because the fourth one actually occurs tomorrow or the day before because it was right before or after midnight but the best places when you find the tide you'll see a chart and that chart will look just like a like a bar chart not really a bar chart more like a line chart and it'll show the water and it'll show that well maybe low tides at let's say 8 a.m and and maybe this tide starts coming in at 8:05 a.m it's immediately once you get to the lowest point you start coming in but you might see that, chart, that that incoming tide come up really, really, really slowly till about, oh, I don't know, 10, 30, 11. Then you'll see that, that, that line begin to come in much faster. And you might even see as it gets close to high tide, it kind of levels off. And those slack tide periods, I've, I've found to be where the tide's coming in or the tide's going out, but it's doing it really, really slow. Uh, a lot of times, if everything else is right, those are some of the best times. So understanding that. Then you got to understand... Like low tide and low tide may not be the same thing. Generally, if you have four tides in a day, your early, your first low tide will be you know you'll see something like a plus uh, a plus one or a plus point eight next to it. What that means is your your mean tide or your your zero would be if there were no tides at all. If it was a lake and there was no moon, that would be your zero. So if you see a low tide and it's like a plus point eight, that means your low tide doesn't even get to that mean zero. Or you might even see a low tide with like a plus 1.5.
Likewise, on your high tide, you might see a high tide with like a plus point three or a plus point or a plus not point a plus three or a plus four. That means it's going to be three to four feet above where that zero would be. Those are really high tides. Likewise, you might see a low tide with like a minus point nine. So now we're that's when you get that you know those tidal pools and you can you know places that were completely covered in three feet of water are bone dry. If you're back in estuaries and the rivers, it's like a mud flat that stinks. Those really low tides. So in understanding what that tide means, just because it says high and just because it says low, doesn't mean that it might not even look that much different. A lot of times, your first low tide in the day, let's say low tides at like. 11 o'clock in the morning. You can look at it, that don't look very low at all. And if the season's right, the fish are running right, that low tide almost doesn't mean anything. Especially if like you're in the summer and the water's really hot like it is right now by the end of the day, and that cool water, that low that fish don't care. You know, as long as they can get up in there, they get up in there. If you have big sandbars and the place that the fish got to now is cut off and it's a tidal pool and it gets kind of stagnant, well, then that's different. So you got to look at the totality of tides, not just high and low. Uh, if you have good surf reports in your area, a lot of times you have a surf forecast. And this is about whether the surf's going to be rough or calm. Calm is generally good. Rough is generally bad. The rougher, less visibility, You have harder times for the fish to, to feed, and a lot of times when you're rough, churned up surf, you know, you're lucky to catch some fish like a sheep's head or a catfish or something like that. Uh, you generally don't do really good. I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying you generally don't. Calm water seems to be best, in my opinion. As I said in my recent experience, summer, when the water gets really warm during the day, cool mornings seem to trump everything. High tide in the morning, calm, cool water, great. By the time we were leaving, it was low tide in the morning, calm, cool water was great. From 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock, it was like magic for four hours. I could not keep fish from biting. That's how good it was. Uh, even the people that were there that were working at the edge of their mental capability to tie a hook on, even those people were catching fish. That's how good that period of time was. Um, seasonality, though, matters. Um, there's a place that I used to fish down near Corpus Christi, uh, on the bay side on a pier, uh, not really surf fishing, but the same type of fishing, that, you know, in, in, in late November near Thanksgiving, the sand trout would move in every day. And you could literally take a 100-gallon igloo cooler out on that pier with cut bait, and if you it didn't matter what the tides were, it was just the time and the temperature of the water, and from about 6 o'clock at night to 10 o'clock at night, You could fill that damn cooler every damn time. And you go two months before that, you can't buy one. You go two months after that, you can't buy one. Uh, so fish do come in waves. They pattern differently. I've been mentioning cool water. Cool water is great when it's hot out. In the winter, when the water gets cold, fish will often move into warm water. So they'll move into shallower flats during the day when that water warms up. And they sometimes, again, tides be damned. They'll move in there and they'll stay there. So, you know, reading fishing reports, who's catching what, what are they catching them on, and what are your, your forecast for your, your surf is really great. Um, piers, sometimes they're only good options. Sometimes when the water's really rough, if you get out on a pier, you can get out past where that water's really churned up and you can do really well. The pro thing I don't like about piers, they're, they're usually crowded. And then you got to get the fish up 
you sell bigger fish, you need to think about ways that you're going to be able to land that fish as well. But at times, they're, they're your, best bet, your best bet. With surf fishing, the beauty is that if there's too many idiots in an area, you can move up or down the beach 20 to 50 yards and change your entire life. And that's, that's really nice. I like that flexibility. It's almost as flexible as having a daggone boat, except you have to drag all your crap with you. In Texas, we have a lot of beaches you can drive on, and that makes it really convenient. Um, I try to set things up where almost everything stays on the truck, even if it wouldn't be suited for going down the highway, for getting in the truck and driving 50 yards down the beach. That's all you got to do is throw one or two things in there and go. Um, so there's that. When waiting, especially in certain times of year when stingrays are around, it's a good idea uh, to shuffle. And what that means is just kind of slide your feet instead of stepping. When you're in a place where a lot of people swim and there's a lot of people out swimming and, and bathing and all that stuff, it, generally they don't just hang out there and bury themselves under the sand. If you're the only person or just a couple people on a beach, uh, especially times of year when the stingrays are around, you need to look that up based on where you are. What they'll do is they get in that shallow, calm water where you're waiting, and when they decide, I don't want to go anywhere, they lay on the bottom and they just kind of shivel, and the sand just covers them. And stingrays are peaceful creatures in spite of the fact that one killed Steve Irwin. Remember, he was riding on his back, crocodile hunter. I was riding on his back when it happened, and it freaked out, and it stabbed him. They're peaceful animals. They don't want to hurt you. But if, if you step on their back, and if a giant stepped on your back, and you had a knife in your pocket, you'd reach up and stab him so he'd get off. So that's just something to keep in mind there. They will sting you, and it's not fun. I, I have been out fishing in the surf. One time in Florida, one of the last times I went, there were cow-nosed rays around. These things were wingtip to wingtip, about four foot. They were big fish. Um, the, the rays are in the same family as sharks, cartilage instead of bones for uh, skeleton. And there were probably a couple thousand of them going up and down the beach the entire time. They looked like a, a black plague moving back and forth, never bothering anybody. And uh, one time I was out waiting about to my waist, and I had polarized glasses so I could see really well. And I look and I see the black cloud coming right at me, and I just stood there and didn't move. And I had about a thousand stingrays bumping my legs as they went by me and they you know without freaking out they never did anything so don't get freaked out with, try not to get freaked out with anything but definitely stingrays they're not out to hurt you and the kind you're going to run into doing that they're not big you know unless you're riding them and you get stabbed in the heart like steve did they're not going to kill you it sucks it's a trip to the er maybe but you ain't going to die so don't freak out um going a little bit here beyond cut baits and live shrimp I love fishing with what we call white bait. Again, that's thread-thin herrings. Uh, small croakers, any kind of small fish. Pinfish are great bait fish. Um, it really opens up the ability to catch larger fish and fish that maybe are a little less quick to hit squid or uh, live shrimp or dead shrimp. So I caught four snook in ten days. Uh, I've taken guided trips for snook and not caught four snook. So... Uh, I considered that a success. I had that fifth one that tried to eat that jack. But I'm convinced if I'd been able to get my hand on some thread-thin herring, uh, there were a lot of snook in that surf, and I would have caught a lot more of them, maybe one of those big old bruisers. I mean, that fish was over three feet if he was over an inch. The head on that fish, you know, eye to eye was close to a foot wide. Uh, and, and had he taken something like a thread-thin, I might have actually got a hook into him. And, and, and at least had a shot at landing him. So I really like having that option available. 
The bait shops just didn't have any, and I was unable to catch any with my cast net. When I travel, I travel with a five-foot uh, monofilament cast net. Uh, it folds up into a nice little bundle. It fits right in my suitcase. Uh, when I bring it back, it's always in a garbage bag because it's full of sand. I don't have time to jack with it, so it keeps the sand out of my clothes. Um, I usually take a six-foot cast net when I go to the beach where I drive. Uh, it's a little bit bigger. Uh, it covers a little bit more area. has a little more weight. sinks a little faster. It's a little bit more effective. Um, I do not throw big nets like the guys I see out there throwing 10-foot, 12-foot nets. Uh, I, I, I don't know the, the right way to throw a net to be able to throw a net that big. Uh, I've lived my whole life without knowing how, and every guy I ever see do it says you're 40-plus years old and you never threw one, you don't need to, don't start doing this. And uh, they wouldn't be good for the surf anyway. They are a great tool. There's times when you're out of the surf, you see a cloud of bait coming through, you grab them one cast, you got a full bucket of bait. This time, 10 days, didn't catch a damn thing in my cast net. Didn't ever see a swarm of bait. And you can sit there casting for hours, and sometimes you pick up a little whiting or a mullet or something, but in general, they have their limits. If there's not a lot of bait in the water, you're not going to catch much with them. Uh, you can walk up and down the beach sight casting to smaller bait fish if you see them in small groups. It does work, but if you're catching fish with live shrimp, you're wasting time. You could be spending uh, fishing. So I basically retired the cast net on about the third day and just had it there in case something came through and never did. So good thing, but not necessarily going to always work. Sand fleas and small crabs are great bait. Snook really likes small crabs. Tarpon likes small crabs. I've never caught a, a tarpon in the surf, though. Uh, but sand fleas are a little type of crab. You can Google them and see them. And if you can get those and you're in an area where there's pompano and permit, you're almost guaranteed to catch one. Uh, every time I've got them, they're like je they look like a little jelly bean, and that must be how they look at them because I've always caught permit or pompano when I've gotten sand fleas. And you can kind of Google how to catch those and, and learn more about them. As far as artificials, everything works. If it works in salt, freshwater, probably works in, in saltwater. I've used one-ounce slab spoons like we use for white bass over uh, structures off of piers and caught fish. I've used you know bucktails when fish are hitting top water. Uh, I've caught saltwater fish on streamer flies. I mean, all of it works. But in my experience, the bait that seems the most universal for an artificial is a bait called the DOA shrimp. And they make them in various sizes. It looks like a live shrimp. And when you drop that thing in the water and cast it, it floats and so, kind of sinks real slowly. And it looks like a live shrimp. And with a little twitch, it looks like a shrimp swimming through the water. And if I was going to recommend one artificial that people have, so that if everything else fails, you've still got something, it would be the DOA shrimp. Um, that said, it don't work real good in the surf unless it's really, really calm. I mean, this is you know, you're not going to fish it with any weight. It's got a little lead inside it that kind of balances it, but you need to be in sort of calm, sort of clear water. I don't have it in my notes, but I did do some fishing with live shrimp behind something called a popping cork. Uh, that works best in the bays and stuff like that, but in some of the calmer situations I was in, and I'd, I'd see some fish that were maybe hitting the surface, uh, I it. I just put that popping cork on real quick, take the weight off, and cast into that area, and it did allow me to catch some trout and some mackerel that I probably otherwise would not have caught, so I'll throw that in there. Safety and comfort gear. Uh, one of the things you need is good needle-nose pliers. 
uh, or good set of hemostats, these fish will swallow the bait. When there's times when you get a, a hook into a place where even if you can reach the hook, it's hard to get out. Some of them are really toothy. You don't want to get bit. You don't need to end up going to ER for stitches because you were stupid and stuck your finger in a mackerel's mouth. So a good pair of pliers. Consider a, a glove or a set of gloves, uh, especially if you're not really familiar with dealing with catfish. I will tell you this about hardhead and gaff top cell catfish. They fin you a lot deeper, a lot harder, and it hurts a lot more than freshwater catfish. And they are slimier, a little harder to control. Um, I'm pretty happy that I only had two little nicks in all of the ones that I caught. Uh, but both of them were trying to be nice to a fish and get a hook out of its mouth so it would survive when I was going to let it go. So consider uh, a glove, uh, a fishing glove, or the ones that are made for, for uh, cleaning fish. They kind of look like chain mail. Sometimes they're like a nylon that looks like chain mail. Those are really good for dealing with some fish. Or um, uh, uh, there's the, the, the like a clamp that clamps on the fish's mouth. If you go to today's episode, uh, you'll see me with the black tip shark. I have one of those in the shark's mouth for the picture before we let it go. Uh, those can be quite useful as well. Um, basic first aid kit, including some aloe gel for sunburns and little things that happen. Uh, jellyfish sting treatment. I feel so strongly about this. I have a link to the one product I believe in in today's show notes. Uh, a little eight ounce bottle is about 14 bucks. It seems expensive till you need it. Um, if you get hit by a man of war or something like that, you're going to the ER. It's a serious thing, but you know, if you get brushed by, you know, one of the, the, the cabbage, they call them cabbage jellyfish or whatever, it stings, it hurts. This stuff works really good. Good knives, a good cleaning board if you're keeping fish. I like to clean fish. You know, either when there's a lull in the action or at the end of the day, uh, it, it's a, really great if you're somewhere where they have a cleaning station. You can drop everything in the water. When we're at the beach, what we'll do is we'll, I'll take when I'm driving, I'll take a shovel and I'll dig, you can dig a two and a half, three foot hole in the sand, you know, in, in five minutes, and just throw all the waste in there and bury it and let it take care of itself. Don't throw all your waste in the shore water because that's you know, shark chum and people swim there. That's not responsible behavior, so don't do that. Uh, a really good cooler with lots of ice and know where you can resupply with ice on the way home. Um, but, you know, this is where coolers that are like the Yeti, I don't believe in paying $500 for a cooler, right? So the Yeti knockoff type coolers are a good thing in these situations for holding ice for a long time. But your good old 100-gallon igloos, uh, from uh, from Costco for fifty bucks are are pretty good too. Um, water, 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 and water. So I don't care if you have your adult beverages, that's fine and whatever you know. But my rule is, if you're going to be drinking beer while you're fishing, it, at least a bottle of water between every beer and two would be better. Uh, you can dehydrate really, really easy. I recently had a a, a really nasty dehydration episode. Uh, it took me a long time to recover from it, and I mean, it's life-threatening shit. So lots of water, sunblock. Um, it's so much more important than you think. Uh, I, I, I spent a lot of time outside in the sun here in Texas. My arms are I got pretty good farmer tan going on and all, but when you're on water or near water, you're not just getting the sun out of the sky. You get the reflection back on you. You're double cooked like a solar oven, literally. Uh, so 
I, I know some people think sunblock causes cancer. I don't believe sunblock causes cancer. I believe that sunblock leads to irresponsible behavior that increases cancer risk. Uh, but when you're going to be in a place where you're going to be exposed to the sun extensively, I recommend sunblock. And primarily, I'm using sunblock on my neck, the back of my ears, and my face and my forehead with a hat that also helps block the sun because I have become a big convert to long-sleeve fishing shirts with wicking fiber. Um, I use a pullover style. I actually have a link to some cool ones that have some neat designs on them and some kind of generic ones in today's show notes. Uh, so you can see what I'm talking about. But they kind of feel like a silk satin type thing, but they're not. Um, and they're, they're a pullover, long sleeve. They're an SPF equivalent of a 50 sunblock, and it don't wear off. Uh, and I've, I've been out and wearing sunblock and still got sunburned. Uh, though it usually works pretty well. I've never been sunburned through a shirt. Okay? So you take that and do with it as you please. Um, but I really like these shirts, and I like them for staying cool. They dry very, very quickly. And especially when you're wading, there was times I'd start to get hot. And yeah, I just squat down and go below my shoulders and arms in the surf. Rod up one hand, swap the other. Shirt completely wet. And as soon as you stand up, it was like someone turned an air conditioner on. Because that water started wicking away and cooling your whole body. So even when that water got warmer, it was very effective at keeping me cool. I'll probably bring you this particular brand of shirts as an item of the day in the T-Spaz thing soon. Bait buckets for live bait. Uh, some sort of a, you know, like a minnow, floating minnow bucket. I kind of the yellow and white ones with the weight in them with the triggered door. Uh, if you're wade fishing, you don't want to have to go all the way back to shore every time you need a new bait. If you're using dead bait, some sort of watertight container, something that maybe hangs around your neck, like a fishing creel type thing, because I want you to take this seriously. Avoid the chomp. And the chomp is when a bull shark decides to see what your leg is, and since he doesn't have fingers and, and toes and thumbs, he uses his teeth. And even if he doesn't drag you away and eat you, if a bull shark just tastes you with his teeth, you're going to the hospital, and you're going to be there a while. And in the majority of instances that people are fishing, that they've been bit by sharks, it has almost inevitably been the case that there's two things that were going on. It was very rough, turbid water where the shark couldn't see, and the dumbass, and I'll use the term because it's the only one, had bait in his freaking pocket. These people are sitting out there with two or three you know, dead squid or a handful of shrimp, dead shrimp, in a, you know, maybe in a Ziploc bag in their pocket, and that smell is just reeking out of them. And bull shark moves into the area and smell and can't see and what is that and tragedy. So don't do that to yourself. If you can drive and you're setting up a camp, I mean canopies, 10 by 10 canopies, tables, etc., all that stuff, it makes things really comfortable, chairs, etc., you know, do it all out. If you're going to spend a couple of days, check out Airbnb. I've been, I, I, I've been threatening to, and I've got to do it soon, plan a trip down to Freeport uh, Texas is only four and a half hours away. Some of the places you can rent for a couple hundred dollars a day with Airbnb are just awesome. Um, and if you go with two or three guys, let's say you put together a group of four guys, and it's $200 a night for a house, and you stay there for four days, right? So everybody's in it for 200 bucks. That's a hell of a mini vacation for $200. You can go to the store and buy food. You can eat your fish. We did a lot of eating the fish and whatever. Um, 
So check Airbnb. And one of the things you'll find, that I found anyway, houses right on the beach tend to rent for a bit more a lot of times than houses that are like, when you get to barrier islands and stuff like Freeport, uh, like Aransas Pass, like Sanibel, like Marco Island, like all these islands up and down the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast, a lot of times the houses that are maybe a mile or a half mile from the beach rent for a lot less. A lot of times those houses will be waterfront. They'll be on the bay side with a canal. So you look out the back door, there's a little canal. And, and those are okay for fishing. They're generally not the best. But I'll tell you what they're wonderful for. During low tide, crabs are in there like crazy. So with some string and some chicken necks or some crab traps, you can make a dual-purpose trip. So when it's low tide, it's, it's middle of the day, you're back at the house, you're drinking a beer, you're cooking dinner, you got your crab traps or your crab lines in, you're catching crabs. And, and so you can plan a hell of a trip. That's exactly what I plan to do when we go down there. So I uh, just thought I'd throw a little bit in there. I was going to talk a little bit about cooking some of this stuff, some of the recipes and all, but we went really long because this is a subject I just love. Uh, I don't want to start turning this back into a two-hour show, so we're going to wrap up here. Um, but I, I will say probably next Tuesday I'll do a, I'm going to do an episode on cooking fish. Uh, saltwater and freshwater both, and some, some real simple, easy things that we did and how they worked out, and some other ideas that work with any fish, including store-bought if you can't get out and fish. Anyway, with that, we've come to the end of another episode. want to remind you one of the ways that you can help support uh, the Survival Podcast is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. If, uh, if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help the Survival Podcast and the work we do. No matter what you buy, you'll see all of my reviews there. And everything you see reviewed, I either own or use or have used in the past. I've spent my own money on it, or I wouldn't ask you to spend yours on it. Uh, today is an item I've brought around quite a few times. I, it doesn't have anything to do with fishing, uh, but I think it's one of those items that just makes one of the best things in the world for basic preparedness in your home. It's made by one of my favorite electronics companies called E-Tech City, E-T-E-K-C-I-T-Y. This is their four-pack of their LED lanterns. It sells for less than $23 for these four lanterns, and they come with batteries. And they're not the best LED lanterns out there. In fact, the best LED lantern on the planet, in my opinion, is the Streamlight Siege Lantern. It's awesome. And you guys know me, I love Streamlight too. Um, but what really got me thinking about this and why I found this product, Jeff Yargo wrote a book called Lights On. Uh, it was about battery power and DC power and generator power. And basically, um, how everybody did everything uh, in rural America before the grid was everywhere. And how we can use that knowledge to be able to be resilient if power goes off. And one of his simple selections was LED lanterns like this. And he said, hey, you just put a little hook in the roof of every room of your house. A little hook, same color as the ceiling, you don't even know it's there. Uh, maybe it's up and hidden behind your ceiling fan if you have one. Maybe you use the little pull thing from your ceiling fan if you have a ceiling fan in that room and you don't need a hook. And if the lights go out, yeah, you got your flashlights and your batteries and your generator and stuff, but you don't really need a light in the whole house up. But what you need is when you go in your kid's room to be able to get their toy that they want so they'll stop whining because the power's out and bring it back to the living room where everybody's hanging out until the power comes back on is to be able to turn a light on in their room, not walking around in there with the flashlight in your teeth. So when the power goes out and you know it's going to be a while, you just take your lanterns and hang them up on all the hooks. When you go in that room, you reach up and pull down on it and the light comes on. And all you can see in the room. I'm like, well, 
you know, the Siege Lantern, the cheapest version of it's like 25 bucks, and the really higher end stuff's $100 more. So even with the $20, $50 product, eight rooms, it's expensive to do this. I found that there's a ton of these lanterns, and most of them are shit. When I found these, they had good reviews and a few bad reviews. And the bad reviews were, I got one and it just didn't work. You know, I bought four of them and one didn't work. So I wrote the company and said, hey, what's up with this? And they said, hey, we're, we're making a product that we're selling for under six bucks. And we're selling thousands of them literally a day. And in general, if it gets there and it works, it works forever. But sometimes they get damaged in shipment and we have a policy. If you tell us one doesn't work, you don't send it back, you don't deal with it, we just send you a new one. Okay. And, and since I first run these things, I've sold thousands of them. And I've had no complaints from anybody. So either they worked or if you got a bad one, they replaced it for you. Um, and, and for this type of use, I just think they're, they're great. They're also great for camping and things like that. They're not super bright, but they're bright enough. Uh, we use one when we use our hot tub. We don't want to turn all the big bright lights on and stuff like that. I have a hook from the tree. I just go out there with it, and this nice little bit of ambient light when we're in the hot tub at night. So uh, functional, useful, makes your life better, good times and bad, E-Tech City uh, lanterns. They do have a new one that has a dimmer switch. I haven't tried it. Probably works just fine. Only costs a couple dollars more by dimming them when you don't need them on full brightness. You'd probably get more battery life out of them, in my opinion. The, other, the, 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 the product that's a known works. It has the same board it always has. Uh, I probably wouldn't spend more money on it. But if I buy another set, I'll probably buy the dimmer ones so I can test them for you. But as of now, I can't say if they're just as good. I can just say I would expect that they are. Next up, before we close up today, remember the best way to support this show is become a member of the Support Brigade. If you do that, you get discounts on stuff you're probably going to buy anyway over the years, and it'll pay for your membership back. And uh, it is the number one way you can make sure that we're always here to provide this content for you by becoming a member. And it ain't like PBS where, you know, you spend 50 bucks and we send you a coffee mug, right? And you got one thing you like. We put good content out every day, original content out every day. Uh, and if you use the discounts, it'll pay for it. And all the other stuff you get is free at that point. That's all I'll say about that today. Let's go to our song of the day. It's by the Cranberries. And it, it's called uh, Zombie which I think you know would fit TSP pretty well compared for the zombies. But it ain't got nothing to do with that kind of zombie. This was uh, inspired by the IRA bombing in uh, Cheshire, England on March 20th, 1993. Two children were killed in this. And uh, the IRA, or Irish Republican Army, for you younger folks who don't remember when this was going on, the militant group was determined to remove British troops from Northern Ireland. Uh, lead singer uh, Dolores O'Rudin, who uh, passed away fairly recently, uh, said that Zombie speaks about, quote, the Irish fight for independence that seems to last forever, end quote. Uh, the lyrics even say it's the same old theme since 1916. And the, the song takes position that killing young children is tragic, but it's still... Uh, brought up a lot of controversy because it went into the political fray. What, I, what I'd like to do for you now is actually read you the lyrics. Yeah, I think it'll make the song a little harder hitting when you hear it, um, to hear it kind of like it's poetry and then hear it as the song. Another head hangs lowly, child is slowly taken, as if violence causes the silence. Who are we mistaking? 
but you see it's not me. It's not my family. It's your, in your head, in your head, they are fighting with their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns. In your head, in your head, they are crying. Zombie, zombie, zombie. What's in your head, in your head? Zombie, zombie, zombie. Another mother's breaking heart is taking over the violence causes silence. We must be mistaken. It's the same old thing since 1916. In your head, in your head, they're still fighting with their tanks and their bombs and their bombs and their guns. In your head, in your head, they are dying. You know, and the zombie, zombie, in your head concept is that war turns people almost into zombies with, with no real thought other than we must destroy this other side. And the IRA took a lot of heat for things like these bombs that killed children and they're terrorists and what have you, but isn't it the case that our civilized nations drop bombs that kill children and we call that unavoidable collateral damage? And to be fair, we have gotten better at doing less of the collateral damage thing in the modern day compared to, let's say, oh no, Jack, they, I'll get there, calm down, compared to World War II. We're like, there's a city, let's bomb it. There's Dresden, let's firebomb the shit out of that. That was the British, yeah, that was the British. We had nothing to do with it, sure. Um, you know, we firebombed the shit out of Japan. With, they had houses of wood and paper. Uh, civilian targets left and right. So we have gotten better about it, but we still have done things like, well, there's going to be a wedding, and we think this terrorist is going to be there. There'll be his family and his kids and other kids and women and children there, but that, eh, you know, it's too big a target not to take it. So the reality is, it's not a defense to say this type of thing happens in in something like the Irish fight for independence under the IRA. This is what war always brings. War is always disgusting. War is always miserable. War is always suffering. And there's never been a war in which innocents, children, women, old, sick, infirm, and crippled did not suffer, were not killed, and did not have their blood shed. In fact, in the history of warfare, it is generally the civilians who have fared the worst. And one of the reasons that we have such an appetite for war in this country is how isolated it's been for us. How easy it's been for us to watch it on our TV, and it just looks like crosshairs and a building blowing up like a video game, and not having it happened in our own streets in the lives of any living American. And you can say what you want about 9-11, but it was an isolated incident. We've not seen what the people of Europe still remember. We've not seen what the people in Bosnia still remember, because that's really fresh on their minds, isn't it? We haven't seen what the people in the Middle East see every day in our own streets. And if we did, we might understand the phrase, what's in your head, zombie, 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 what's in your head, a little bit better. Anyway, with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.